The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. That was one of the storylines and creating the arc of the story, if you're talking about writing it, writing the narrative, um, certainly the arc of Mike's character going from this joyful, you know, excited scientist to this really kind of broken man after that oil spill. There was a second storyline that I wanted to weave throughout, which is that, you know, while his whole point was we were destroying the ocean before we knew what was there, I realized after he died that, you know, there there are parts of my relationship with him that I wished we'd explored, you know, similar to exploring the deep sea. And, and then suddenly I was left with this situation where I couldn't. And I just was like, wow, you know, why do we wait so long to have these conversations or deal with these issues? And so I saw in some ways these parallel storylines between ignoring the ocean before it's too late, ignoring the depths of our own relationships before it's too late. Greetings, scribes, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you prolificness, prosperity, and peace of mind per usual. Award-winning documentarian Mimi Degree joined myself and author Adam Skolnick for a deep dive into the genesis of her documentary, exploring the legacy and environmental activism of her late husband, trailblazing ocean filmmaker Mike Degree. Mike was a lauded filmmaker, biologist, and activist who pushed the boundaries of cinematography and diving technology to explore never-before-seen ocean life and share it with the world. In 2012, Degree died tragically at age 60 in a helicopter crash in Australia while filming for Academy Award-winning director James Cameron. Diving Deep, Life and Times of Mike Degree, was a documentary crowdfunded, directed, produced, and written by Mimi, Mike's widow and filmmaking partner. Told through the eyes of his wife, film celebrates Mike's life, career, and what he passionately believed, that we are destroying the ocean before we even know what's there. The Hollywood Reporter said, it succeeds as a touching personal reminiscence as an understated but effective environmental manifesto. The film opened the Santa Barbara International Film Festival in 2019 and won Best Film at the Ocean Film Festival, audience favored at the Aspen Mountain Film Festival, and many other awards. It's now available across all platforms, including Apple TV slash iTunes and Amazon rentals. Adam Skolnick is the award-winning journalist and author covering adventure sports, environmental issues, travel, and human rights for the New York Times and other outlets. He's the author of One Breath, a ghostwriter and narrator of David Goggin's smash memoir and audiobook Can't Hurt Me, and he is a co-host on the Rich Roll podcast. As a bonus, Adam and I kicked off the show by discussing the legacy of beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti. In this file, Mimi, Adam, and I also discussed why friends and family described Mike Degree as a human exclamation mark. The single piece of footage that inspired Mimi to make the documentary, how the BP oil spill cemented the filmmaker's life mission, the fascinating arc of Mike's career and why his spirit was undeterred by a very rare shark attack. And at the break, I've got a podcast preview from this week's sponsor, Look Closer, 
the Found Fiction Podcast. You can learn more about that fantastic podcast at foundfiction.org. Stay calm and write on. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by a couple of very special guests. And presently, I am rapping with our old friend Adam Skolnick. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Nice use of the word rapping. That was very beat generation of you. <laughs> very beat gen. <clears throat> well, part of part of the uh, theme of this show is a an homage to um, a very uh, iconoclastic character in the beat uh, movement, right? Yeah, exactly. He uh, he put us in the Coney Island of his mind. Yeah. So we're talking about Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the poet, um, publisher. He was a political activist, um, really kind of at the crux of the beat generation, the beat movement, and of course, then the hippie uh, and the, um, yeah, that whole thing, that whole <laughs> That thing. whole movement. Yeah. <laughs> so he, um, he published a couple career highlights. He published one of the most successful American volumes of poetry in history, the Coney Island. It's called Coney Island of the Mind. It, there's a million copies in print of that. And he also was the publisher of a 40, I'm looking at it right now, a 57-page pocket volume of poetry by Allen Ginsberg, Howell and mm-hmm. Other Poems. And it was published in, uh, in San Francisco. Basically, he was published, he had, he had City Lights Bookstore. He had already opened it. And he was, uh, in, I guess, in 1956, he started publishing poetry um as the poets started pouring into his place and Allen Ginsberg is one of those people in 1956 he published this poem and it was just like it was just electric and it's an electric revolutionary revolutionary it changed poetry uh basically forever from the stodgy old poets of yore to a whole different brand of kind of uh soul-searching poetry yeah, I thought that was interesting. You know, of course, City Lights Bookstore is um, just um, a, a truly inc- a historic monument to poetry in general. But, but um, you know, it was like the first paperback bookstore in San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, Berlinghetti, of course, was, a, um, you know, kind of on the front lines of some kind of controversial moments of the of that anti-war movement right well yeah well before that even in the in the 50s uh like after howell was published it was became a sensation people were pouring in to buy it and uh the guy the clerk at the store was arrested for selling it to a minor um and he and then he was arrested for lingetti was as the publisher indicted uh municipal charges but it was on under publishing of of obscene literature and it became this landmark First Amendment case. And because it was, you know, had social value, they they got a lawyer basically argued that you can't have nothing, obs- you can't label something obscene and bar it from publishing if it has social value. And so because hmm. of that, they won the case. And um, there was a precedent already, and this kind of reinforced that precedent. And, you know, it was the beginning of making that bookstore and and the beat generation into basically rock stars and people like jack kerouac neil cassidy gary snyder you know ginsburg they all poured into this place uh city lights and basically it became it still is for many years a temple to that generation of literature and and uh i mean for me and you i mean when when we first started writing uh, I was very, we were both very much inspired by the beat generation. I'd go to city lights and it was like walking into like an, an ashram of literature, mm-hmm. kind of like I always bought more than I came for. I always felt good just walking around in that small shop. And, you know, I, I, I think it's not, not a reach to say I wouldn't be a writer if it weren't for city lights bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. Howl is, um, truly an amazing and inspiring poem. And of course, uh, Ginsburg went on to do some pretty interesting stuff, um, founding the Jack Kerouac School for 
disembodied poetics Mm -hmm. there in Boulder, now the campus of Naropa Institute. And he, yeah, he was also a a pioneer. Yeah. But, uh, and and I think that uh, Ferlinghetti talked about, you know, in everyday life, there's, it just gets awful sometimes. And, and the key for him in childhood was to find this, what he called a lyric escape. And lyric escape can be writing, it can be, you know, making love to your partner, it could be running, swimming, diving, whatever. Um, somewhere to find a peace of mind is a lyric escape. And I think City Lights and Howl and On the Road and all that great literature that came out of it, um, that is a lyric escape. It was for me for hmm. years, it still is. And um, I, th- I don't think there's any better tribute to be able to, to put that out in the world. And you know it helped so many people. Absolutely. Remind me of the location of City Lights. It's not on the hate, is it? No, it's North Beach. North Beach. That's yeah. Right. Just up the hill from the Transamerica building. Uh-huh. Well, um, we uh, doff our caps to Mr. Ferlinghetti and, and his journey to the other side. Um, so a moment of silence. Creative ideas are waiting to be found all around us. Whether they're in the form of an old lady waiting alone at a bus stop. If she hadn't gasped it, well, we wouldn't have stopped. Raindrops racing each other down a window. And it's like pieces of a puzzle. Wow. Or a tree growing through a barbed wire fence. I might take the same with me, actually. <laughs> Uncover the creative processes of writers, poets and artists. I'm really driven by ideas. Quite a lot of my stuff does work around reflection. Learn more about them as human beings. I can tell them I want to be a superstar, a world-class artist, and they don't laugh at you. And get expert advice on how to become an artist yourself. Why does a story have to be one kind of long story? So you enter into chapters. You've got to aim for the top. Be empowered with the vision to find inspiration in everyday places. Listen to Look Closer, the Found Fiction podcast. This is such a good practice. Should all be doing this. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. There he is. Hello. Is he there? I'm here. <laughs> is he there? We had some uh, very interesting technical difficulties, but I, I think we're back. Is, me, is Mimi here? I am here. Can you hear me? Hey. Hey, Mimi. Hi. Great movie. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was saying I'm revealing all my techno deficiencies here. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, sorry if you were that. under if you were underwater, everything would go smooth. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am thrilled to have you both on um, as we introduce 
Mimi Degree, uh, who's joining us from, are you in Santa Barbara today? I am in Santa Barbara, yes. The gorgeous, the gorgeous uh, beaches of Santa Barbara. I miss Santa Barbara. I've hung out with Adam in Santa Barbara. No yeah, kidding. We had, a, we had a very uh, beat gen two days up there. Communing it, with the spirits. It's pretty wonderful. I cannot complain. I really can't. As I watch the rest of the country freezing and, you know, getting buried under snow and ice, I, I just kind of keep quiet over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where are you guys? I'm in uh, Denver, Colorado. And I actually met Adam, though, in Portland, Oregon, when we were doing um, some environmental work many, many years ago. Mm. Uh, some nonprofit work. And then so Adam and I met in Portland. He was working out of the LA office then for that nonprofit, right? Yeah. And I'm still in the LA area in Santa Monica. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then uh, we had a training in Santa Barbara where we got to camp out on the sand. Well, nice. I think we just I think we just did camp out. I don't think it was allowed. <laughs> That's right. No. I'm pretty sure it was not allowed. It's squatted. definitely not allowed. I'm <laughs> impressed that you were even able to pull it off, actually. You know where it was? It was in Isla Vista. You know where that like research marine biology research station sure. is? Or yeah, uh -huh. like on on the bluffs there. Uh -huh. So it's in that in that beautiful beach with the estuary behind. And, yeah. And we just uh, that was where our meeting was, and we just never left. We like kind of just party for a few days. We squatted. <laughs> we had, How fun. We had bonfires and um, yeah. live yeah. music. I think Adam was playing the bongos or something. It was very beat. <laughs> what, what was the nonprofit? That sounds like a fun one to work for. Well, the, no, we were, it was just like four or five renegades from that world. But it was, um, I think it was, it was the, the Calperg. It was the Fund for Public fund. Interest Research. That's it. We had actually hooked up with the Sierra Club and we're doing some stuff up in the Pacific Northwest for them. And then, you know, they would kind of rent us out hmm. for different causes. Yeah. So, Well, yeah. good. So you saw the beach side of Santa Barbara. It's good. It's beautiful. Definitely. Um, cool. So what do you think, Kelton? We can't, yeah. we can't wait to get into it. Mimi and I were yeah. talking a little bit in the green room um, on another platform. We all met up on separate platforms today. Um, we're rolling. And yeah, I can't wait to talk about diving deep. This um, really heartfelt... Uh, and moving documentary of yours, Mimi. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your interest. So, yeah. So the interesting question here, and of course, I, I brought Adam along because he's often um, co-hosted the show. He, um, if you don't know Adam and his work, he has um, covered a lot of uh, extreme and endurance. He's an award-winning uh, New York Times journalist who's done extreme sports beat and um, is best known for his book about um, the famous American freediver Nick Mavoli. And okay, uh, yeah. so, so he's covered the freediving world and is an ocean lover. And I brought him along to chat. But yeah, we were talking kind of about the, you know, the in roads to documentary filmmaking, how we talk about, you know, we've, we've talked with a lot of TV writers and, and screenwriters and filmmakers um, alike on this show. But yeah, we want to talk kind of about the documentary film process. And, and you and I are rapping a little bit about this just on, you know, kind of how this narrative arc comes to be. Obviously, a documentary doesn't write itself, doesn't create itself, right? So, so when you come into a project like, like this, you know, how does that creative process start? And, and let's talk about Mike's legacy also and kind of, yeah, how this all came to be. Sure. Well, let's see how to start. I think, you know, the motivation for making the film in the first place, obviously, was the fact that um, Mike had died suddenly. And I, at, at the time of his death, we were um, in the midst of a couple of projects. And so I knew I couldn't really figure out um, easily which of those projects I should continue without Mike. And my, my process was to go into the edit room and sort through a lot of footage that we had. And in the course of doing that, I came across this one piece of footage that was so moving to me. And he was so impassioned. Um, he was on camera that I felt that was that piece of footage embodied what I felt Mike would want to want 
to be saying had he lived. And in essence, that piece of footage was saying, we are destroying the ocean before we know what's there. Um, And so in order for me to be able to frame a story around that concept um, and for people to understand why Mike had felt that so strongly, um, I realized I had to introduce them if they didn't know him already to Mike and have them fall in love with him. And then when he reached this point of despair following the BP oil spill, and that's where this piece of footage was filmed. It was in response to the BP oil spill. Um, In order for them to understand his despair, they would have to know who Mike was. So I kind of crafted this story um, of Mike's life culminating with this utter outrage that such an oil spill could happen. And, and the reason it was so, um, it was so important to Mike was that the BP oil spill happened in his backyard. It was where he'd grown up, where he'd learned to love the ocean, where he'd learned to scuba dive. And so he took it very personally. And, um, so I felt that for them to feel the full depth of his rage, I would have to tell them who he was and have, take them on a, take them on a trip through his life culminating in that point. And so you're just, just to clarify for listeners, she's talking about the deep water horizon accident, 2010, I believe it was the year. Is that right? Yes. 2010. Yeah. 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 And that was one of the largest uh, oil spills, maybe the largest in the history of, uh, of kind of man-made disasters in our country. Yeah. 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 It was a tragedy. And, as you kind of get into, you know, more about that um, disaster, yeah, one of the more maddening things about it, I think, for all of us was the to, uh, that use of dispersants, right? Yes. Yes. Interestingly, I had an email the other day from someone who had worked on behalf of the company that made it, and he was just feeling such, such kind of... Uh, he was just really beating himself up about it. And I said, you know, I had a meeting with a scientist at UCSB who said, you know, actually that dispersant can be useful in certain situations. For example, if the oil is, you know, suddenly rushing towards a nesting bird colony or something where they really need to disperse the oil quickly and get rid of it. But in the case of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, they really hadn't done research of what would happen to when they use that dispersant at depth, um, you know, as a mile down or um, in the quantities that they used the dispersant, they hadn't tested it on different creatures and how they would respond. I mean, it was just a whole big mess of errors at every step. So the use of the dispersants really just made a bad situation worse. Mm. But, you know, like it's, it's not that different than the way the ocean's been treated basically since, we can remember, right? Like, you know, DDT barrel, there was that great LA Times expose about the, the discovery of the DDT barrels just offshore here in Southern California. You know, it's been a dumping ground for a long, long time. And it's because people don't understand the depths, right? Which was something that was passion of Mike's and yours was to it, it, not just to educate, but kind of entertain and educate at the same time about what what the ocean provides. And, and so people don't realize that it provides every second breath that we take, you know, the oxygen produces the oxygen for every second breath we take. They don't understand that. And then, and we don't really understand what's under with as deep as he was, was trying to go. And, uh, and so it's this out of sight, out of mind thing. It's not that uncommon to the way we've been treating the ocean. I mean, since we've been a country. Well, since we've been a civilization, I think, I think, you know, I think, um, yes, I think people have no clue um, what's just beneath the surface, let alone down in the depths. So I think, you know, they think, well, you can just take as much as you want, take, you know, all the fish that you need, you can um, take any number of different things. Now, of course, there's the whole issue of deep sea mining, which Mike would be completely appalled by. Um, Certainly. I think the biggest issue for him was, you know, we just haven't researched and we haven't, we haven't explored and we don't even know what's there. And sure. I mean, everybody's excited right now about, you know, the Rover on Mars. I I am too. I think it's thrilling, (laughs) but there's a certain frustration. I think 
at seeing the all the excitement around that and thinking, well, wait a second, you, you know, we're not even putting um, a fraction of that amount of resources towards exploring the sea, let alone the deep sea. So mm-hmm. you're right. I think it's it's kind of it's taken for granted and at our own peril. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, and that was too in my film. I think that was one of the storylines and creating the arc of the story if you're talking about writing it mm-hmm. and writing the narrative um certainly the arc of mike's character going from this joyful you know excited scientist to this really kind of broken man after that oil spill there was a second a, a storyline that i wanted to weave throughout which is that you know while his whole point was we were destroying the ocean before we knew what was there. I realized after he died that, you know, there, there are parts of my relationship with him that I wished we'd explored, you know, similar to exploring the deep sea. And, and then suddenly I was left with this situation where I couldn't. And I just was like, wow, you know, why do we wait so long to have these conversations or deal with these issues? And so I saw in some ways, these parallel storylines between ignoring the ocean before it's too late, ignoring the depths of our own relationships before it's too late. Um, hmm. or, to yeah. stop igno- or to stop ignoring, to investigating, right? Right. Yeah. Pretty yes. amazing. Well, it must have been a, an interesting journey for you, the, the um, putting all that footage together. Certainly an homage, right, to Mike and his incredible spirit and life. And as you as he's been described, he was a human exclamation mark. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that comment came at his memorial from actually from his brother who someone else had said it to him. And, um, and I think we all laughed and thought, you know, that's a perfect way of describing him. Yes, it was, a it was a process. And I think it, you know, it, it was, I felt couple of things. Well, I felt a million things, but um, I really did feel fortunate to have the opportunity to do it because I felt that in the process of grieving, it was like my life raft. You know, I could just climb up there and and um, really work on this film. And it gave me something bigger to think about than my own grief. This whole idea of, you know, Mike being so upset about not exploring the ocean it was an idea that was bigger than me and bigger than my sadness. So Hmm. from that standpoint, it was, I felt a really, um, I felt really lucky to be able to do it. Um, Maybe it was the, uh, the conversation that you wanted to have with him while he was alive. It was kind of that process too, right? The investigation of your relationship. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I just want to set the table for listeners um, who my degree is because I didn't, you know, and I'm in this space, you know, I covered Rob Stewart's death for outside. I've, 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 you know, written a lot about free diving and, 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 um, ocean athletes, but, uh, but I didn't know of Mike and his work, but he, but I did know his work. You know, he did underwater footage for Titanic, Blue Planet, uh, Shark Week. Um, I mean, really mega, uh, he was a BBC presenter, like, you know, he was the top, top level ocean filmmaker. Um, he, he photographed lava coming into the ocean before anyone had ever done that. Mm-hmm. He photographed the orca footage of of grabbing the the baby sea lions that we've all seen. He was the first guy there doing that. Uh, I mean, this, we've all seen his work. That's it, it's 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 monumental work and a monumental life. Well, yeah, thanks. I th- I think you know somebody after he died said you know if he'd put a fraction of the time he spent doing the work into um, kind of self-promotion, you know, everybody would have known who he was. But first of all, it was he was kind of before social media. I, he was mm. kind of getting into Twitter when he died. But um, and he just wasn't into he just didn't care. You know, he didn't he didn't care about whether people knew him or not. He just wanted to do the work and have the work fe- speak for itself. Um it was admirable. I, I don't always think it was the best business decision, maybe, but um, but I think he just loved the work, and that's all he, you know, that's what he wanted to do. So it is interesting that, you know, people say, oh, "Yeah, I, I don't know his name." But, oh yeah, oh, but I know that work. 
Hmm. Um, and I find that kind of moving and touching. It's a rare thing in this day and age, I think. Yeah, I think it. I think it's the ultimate compliment, for especially for someone like him. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah, he truly was a um, just a trailblazing um, and unique individual. With with he was just uh, didn't have didn't have a huge ego, but he did um, radiate a great amount of uh, spirit. Yes, and humble. I, Would you describe him as humble? I, I guess that that was the word I was looking for. You know, it's an interesting, he was kind of a conundrum in some ways because yes and no, I would say to the humble question. I think, I think actually ultimately what it comes down to in thinking about it over these years is I think he was really, as his brother said, he was of the world. He was, he was in the world and he, he was in the ocean. He was very much a part of it. And I think he understood at a truly um, cellular level, actually, without sounding too supernatural, the oneness of of the world and with other animals and other life forms, um, certainly in the ocean. And I think, so I think he was competitive, obviously, and he had drive and he, he had ego in that sense, but he really just felt a, a mission to speak on behalf of these animals that didn't have a voice in our language. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So he just needed to get out there and kind of share with the world behavior that would behavior of animals and, and particularly sea, sea creatures that he hoped would endear um, these animals to people so that they would care more and, and take care of them. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, um, one really rather affecting piece of the documentary was just kind of that that idea that you've spoken about, and I, I was going to I was going to um, mention Mars also, but kind of um, you know James Cameron was into aliens and that kind of stuff, but there really was that feeling that you know down down deep deep below the ocean that we are the aliens, right? Yeah, and there's that kind of there's that kind of strange um, you know there's all these beautiful creatures that that many have not seen um face to face before that i got a chance to um but he was he was kind of the outer space visitor down there right yes yeah yeah i mean he loved going places people hadn't been you know he loved to um explore and he loved to reveal what he'd found um yeah he was he really was he had the the uh, kind of joy of discovery and sense of wonder that scientists have you know and he was a communicator he loved to talk so mm. you know he you know if you ask him a question just be ready to sit down and listen for a while um, <laughs> he was a good talker yes and he yeah. was a good talker one of the things he was he was a very gesticulating talker i think jim cameron in the opening we used a piece where he said he spoke two languages english and hands um, <laughs> and you know if you were up in front of an audience with Mike, you know, as sometimes I was, I'd have to move. I'd have to give myself a five foot berth or he would literally probably send me across the stage, you know, with Amazing. his arm. He just was kind of a, he just was a full bodied person. <laughs> well, um, he's amazing. I, I have, I have some questions, um, about him, but I, you know, I've never seen J- James Cameron that disarmed ever in any interview I've ever mm. seen of James Cameron. So, congrat! I mean, it, it, obviously, that speaks to your relationship with him. I don't know, Kelton, if you agree. I mean, I've seen James uh, yeah. Cameron be interviewed before. I've never seen him so disarmed, so open like that. Oh yeah, I I I was really moved by. I mean, I get actually it makes me sort of teary even thinking about it. I, I really was moved by that conversation, and I think. You know, it it was a deeply, deeply horrible thing. And he was close yeah. to those two guys. And, um, you know, and he's a good guy. So I think, um, yeah. And, and I my, he gave one of my favorite quotes, which is, you don't explore, you don't conquer the ocean, you let it, her teach you. Mm-hmm. Um, I may have slightly misquoted that, but yeah. Um, Kelton, can I interject here with a couple of questions just on the oh, please. process? Uh, you, so 
tell it, take us through because you know, your archives obviously are gold. I mean, you, you, I mean, you must have thousands and thousands of hours of footage that you poured over as part of this process. How did uh, tell take us through kind of you know this tragedy happens? When do you start actually trying to make the movie? And what's the process of going through the archives for you? Sure. So you know, I really, honestly, after the accident, there were there were there was a good number of months where I couldn't do much <laughs> except mm. try to make sure my kids were okay, mm. um, and just make sure I was okay. I mean, it just it's, it was pretty um, pretty pretty earth shattering for me. But anyway, I, I would say six or so months into it, I I kind of went back into the edit room and I just started going over the footage. Um, and I, I knew that if I just slowly and quietly sat in that edit room by myself and went through footage that the film would, would emerge and, and my heart and my head would, you know, lead me where I needed to go in equal measure. Um, and so I went over everything and yeah, there's a lot. And I mean, so how, that, how many hours do you estimate well, you have? I, you know, now that I've said that, I mean, I, I, I would say it was probably, it wasn't all that much. It was probably a hundred maybe. Okay. So Less than I thought, yeah, because I was really going through completed films. And then if, if there was something in that, completed film that I felt I needed to go back, then I would go through the rushes and go through the, the, um, you know, the rest of the footage, um, some of the outtakes and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, so it really was a question of what, what, what was the, the storyline? What was the narrative? What was the arc of his character? How was I telling the story? And as of course you guys know, there are a million and one ways to tell any story. And I think I probably tried 999,000. Million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it took me a while to kind of settle on a, a storyline, and and um, yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question. Well, you knew you were going to take describe his career. I mean, that was part of it, and you had you found that one nugget which was going to be where you le- you lead to, and then the third act of kind of him coming, you know, right. more introspective of his character. But what I found interesting was. He was always an athlete, right? He was always on the water or in the water. He was always interested in animals. He was a competitive diver in college um, of the diving boards. And then he gets into underwater. What What was the progression for him going from like scuba to tech diving to actually, you know, driving subs and getting in those like submarine suits? Like what's the progression there? How many years from scuba to really technical diving with rebreathers and, and onward? Gosh, that's a really good question. In terms of actual the actual years when he started those, well, I, he started scuba diving. He got certified when he was, I think, eleven or twelve. Um, and so, you know, he was still filming on film. I would say we were still filming on film in the late eighties, um, shooting on film, sixteen millimeter, super sixteen, thirty five, and then the transition from that to video of course for digital um and then in terms of the actual tech of the vehicles and the ways he would get to the sites where he was filming i don't remember when he started using rebreathers that would have been the next step um or maybe that was concurrent with you know going into the subs i honestly Hmm. don't know but i want to say that was late 90s um, early 2000. So early, too. early, early in on the rebreather, like whenever it happened, he was on it. I'm sure he was on it. Yep. He yeah. had one of the earlier versions. I know that because, you know, in trying to kind of give away his gear and, you know, his rebreather just wasn't even worth discussing because it was such an old model. <laughs> um, so yes. And, and then certainly the subs, I'm not sure which I think his first I think his first deep sea expedition was actually to a place called Nine North with the BBC. Um, and that was, I think, on the Russian mirrors subs. Hmm. Um and he just, gosh, he loved that. And I went that was probably, oh my gosh, I get my time all mixed up. I think that was 2004 or five. 
So he just loved that. I mean, he loved that was, you know, going to film the hydrothermal vents. And yeah. I think a, the phenomenon was so incredible um, to behold and see and, you know, be just the, the, for him, the excitement of going in a sub and going that depth and going places where very, very, very few people had ever been was thrilling. And then, you know, that just led to um, a curiosity about taking, learning how to drive the one-man sub, so the deep rovers and just the freedom that that would give him. Um, I think I have in the film a, a little clip with Mike and Sylvia Earle, who's another incredible ocean explorer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, both of them saying it's so incredible to be down there and you're not wet. You know, you can go, A, you can go really deep and B, you can, you're dry and comfortable. And I mean, I don't know that I would be so comfortable, but. No. Um, you still pee in your pants. Right. In a <laughs> bottle or something. <laughs> I know. Um, or you just don't drink anything. I think that was the key. Um, so. Yeah, so he just loved, and 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 then using the full face masks, you know, he just loved being able to communicate to people in the moment while he was experiencing it underwater. Yeah. That was just a revelation. It's just incredible because for people who don't know, like to to learn to dive on a rebreather is is a an entire process. I mean, the rebreather is the type of thing where you that you exhale in it's a closed circuit so you inhale and exhale but there's no bubbles no gas escapes and so this it's got a computer that kind of takes the oxygen separates it and puts it back into air for you to breathe um right and i mean scrubs I'm, I'm, it. Yeah. it scrubs it right and so there uh you know to be able to do that to learn how to you know pilot a submarine and then to keep up with all the science and to make films i mean you're talking about a monumental work <laughs> Out <laughs> of work. You know what? Thank you for saying that because, you know, we all sort of, those of us who work closely with him, we're always just kind of amazed. It's like, wow, does he have time to do anything else? And the answer is, you know, he absolutely adored his kids, but he was a, he was pretty obsessed. You know, mm -hmm. he, he was, he was driven and he, he would be doing a lot more had he lived. Um, and I think the deep sea mining issue is one area he'd be looking closely, but also just getting people out in submarines. I mean, it's it's a crazy, I don't know actually today what the number of subs, manned subs is that's out there, um, mm. but it's precious few and too few. And I think for him, ROVs, remotely operated vehicles were for sure really great on many levels, but they could not compare with, human eyes and the experience you can't you you don't you don't have a point of comparison you can't see something in the corner of your eye if you're mm. you know operating an rov and you can't sort of compare the size and the depth and perception so anyway he would be very much um speaking on behalf of the need to keep exploring with people mm. in there incredible yeah so the shark attack is a big, you know, kind of section, not a huge section, but a, a nice chunk <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> to use a word um, yeah. in, in, in the early part of the film, right at the end of the first act, kind of beginning of the second act, you're, you're, you're looking at the shark attack that happened to him. And um, having been in the water a lot of hours and, and spent time with gray, gray reef sharks, it was shocking to me to see a five foot gray reef, reef shark, um, you know, attack him. And so it's kind of interesting. And I just thought, you know, that's, it's not really explored the species of shark too much or how un uncommon it is for a reef shark in most locations to, to do that. Is it something, what did he think was the reason for that? Or was it, was it just the location? They happen to be aggressive there or did he find it odd as well? Well, I mean, he was living out there and knew that they, they did it there and they, okay. they behaved that way. But I'll tell you what, I mean, I was there when we did the recreation and I saw it too. We, the first dive that we did the first day, we were cornered by a posturing gray reef. And so, and then of course it took us three weeks to get it, to find one to do it again. But anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but, um, but it's really unusual behavior and it only happens in that area. I think it now maybe in French Polynesia and somewhere out there, maybe gray reefs behave that way, but not 
not all gray reefs, and it seems to be unique to that area. I I kept asking, and nobody ever said no, but nobody ever said yes. But I wondered if there was some relationship to the all of the testing, the nuclear testing that had gone on in that particular part of the world. Um, South Pacific, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This was so- the Marshall Islands, and we talk in the Marshall Islands, which is where you know, we did a lot of our nuclear testing there in Bikini Atoll and interesting, Atoll. Yeah. And so to me, it seemed like it was pretty, pretty obvious, but um, I'm not sure anyone could definitively say that was true or, you know, who knows? I'm not a scientist, but it, it just seemed awfully peculiar that that's the only place they did it. And that that's where all of this testing had taken place. Hmm. And uh, one other thing was just kind of like to see him in, in that world. And obviously I say him just because the movie is about him, but you're, you're right there with him as a, as a co-conspirator and all this incredible production that has been done. And it's uh, I guess people, I, I think listeners would be curious, like he's, he's in that level with Sylvia Earl. I mean, that's, that's kind of, we're talking about one of the giants in this space, but was that work lucrative? Was it something where um, there were work droughts? Was it, you know, what was the nature of that kind of production? Um, you know, freelance you know, filmmaking and underwater production? Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, there there weren't too many droughts, but I wouldn't say it was lucrative. No. Right, right, right. For a couple of reasons. One is, you know, Mike was always so anxious to get out and make the... Um, make the films that he kind of sometimes would be the deals weren't always the best. And thank you for, for saying I was right there with him. I, I was there for much of it or some of it, I would say, but he had his own career and his own trajectory and his own expertise that really didn't include me. Mm. Um, and but together, we, we both, we didn't make the best deals. And I think partly because he just wanted to get out there and do it. And also, um, yeah, I mean, I think some of our friends who kept their footage, probably that was a very smart move. And for us, a lot of the footage ended up or, or still is owned by the BBC or National Geographic. Hmm. And, you know, that's kind of hard. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was just, you know, that was the, that was a lot of our friends are in the same boat. That's kind of, that was the day. And yeah. um, so, no, I would not say it was a little Well, I didn't think it was, but I mean, I also, <laughs> it's expensive, right? He must've like loved buying cameras and, and housings and things like that. I mean, like for any gearhead, this movie is like, uh, like a candy jar, you know, like to see all the different, the waves of camera gear and housings and how that 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 happened over the course of several decades uh and you know you can see it in the movie the innovation it's cool he definitely was such a gearhead one of the ways he got around that though he would actually in the case of the one of the housings he designed it with the guy who was building it um and so because he was designing it um he, you know, that he got that for free, <laughs> mm. you know, we never, he never shared in the profits of the rest of the, you know, the housings that were designed, but that wasn't, he didn't care, you know, mm. he just didn't care. It's the truth. And that was a little hard sometimes because we have two kids, but um, <laughs> he just wanted to do the work. Um, so we had a few, we had a few interesting conversations about all that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> was that part of what you wish you'd talked to him about <laughs> well actually no we talked a lot about that i what i'd wished i'd talked more about was just how incredible i thought he was but the, but he also wasn't very good at sharing his innermost thoughts and his vulnerabilities he really really wasn't and i think for you know for anyone to really thrive in a relationship you have to be vulnerable you have to be willing to go there to those mm. places and uh that he was getting there but he wasn't there and i can say well, the same about myself so he's a throwback we need more throwbacks <laughs> like that know. just put it just put just 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 blow on it and keep moving <laughs> i know <laughs> oh gosh yeah i do want to mention the title of the film one more time diving deep the life and times of mike degree you can buy uh or rent the film now right it's on 
Yes. Um, Apple, Amazon, Amazon, Apple. Fandango, Google Play, Microsoft, Xbox, Vimeo, Voodoo, YouTube. And uh, yeah, I thought this uh, Hollywood Reporter blurb was nice. The film succeeds as a touching personal reminiscence and as an understated but effective environmental manifesto. Um, it does indeed. Mimi, congratulations on the work. It's, uh, it is moving and it is beautiful. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for your interest, really, seriously. Well, I want to say thank you for um, sharing your time and, and wisdom and stories with us today. And also thank you for sharing the life of um, a truly remarkable human being. And uh, yeah, we wish you all the best of luck with the film, of course. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Is there anywhere else you want to point listeners? No. I mean, the website has, you know, they have, we have, well, we're not as good as we should be right now, but um, yeah, the website has the most information about what's going on, I guess. Um, that link is um, divingdeepmovie.com. You can yes. learn, learn more about it, see the trailer. Um, do catch the film. It is, it is uh, something to behold. Oh, did you lose me? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. We're here. <laughs> okay. We've we've both seen it. We've seen it. Already. <laughs> right, 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 right. I'm not right. talking to you. So, oh, wait, uh, this okay. is not live. Is this live? <laughs> no, no. This is not no, live. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, um, we'll edit it. No, thank you guys so much. And I really appreciate your insightful um questions and comments and, and also just your con yeah. I appreciate it. It's great. Thank you. I, I can't wait to tell more about more people about Mike. I mean, I think, you know, you you had this the octopus teacher, my octopus teacher, which was such a big hit on Netflix. And, you know, Mike is a, it's a totally different story, but there are parallels in that here's another really interesting, engaging artist who are the ocean touched him deeply. And um, I think Mike's story is, 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 I think it's got, there's, a, there's more meat to it and it's, it's actually more interesting, but there's a parallel in the beauty yeah. and, the, and, and, and there. And I think the time is right. So if you liked octopus teacher, which was a big hit, I think you'd really like this movie. 100%. Thank you. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having <laughs> me. All right. Well, be well, both of you. You too. Thanks, Mimi. Bye. See ya. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.